So have you guys ever wondered why do people show up on Sundays and they meet together in buildings all over the world and they sit down and they listen to music and they listen to someone talk or share a message out of the Bible? Like, why does that happen? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why are people showing up on Sundays all over the place? What's the deal with Sunday? Like, why did that or why does that happen? 2,000 years ago, no one gathered on Sundays for religious purposes. It didn't happen. 2,000 years ago, no one got together on Sunday and was like, we should sing some music and we should read a passage out of the Bible and talk about how we should live. Like, that didn't happen. When I was growing up, my dad wasn't a believer. And uh, my mom had started taking my sister and I to church because she was like, we moved down to Tennessee and we have the last name Hanovich. And she was like, they'll never make friends in school. I've got to hopefully make some friends for them at church. And so she heard about Jesus for the first time and the fact that Jesus died in her place and that she didn't have to be filled with guilt. She could be free of that by believing on Jesus. And so she started taking my sister and I to church. But my dad, he didn't believe. He didn't want to go. And in fact, when we would drive by a church, um, he would say, look at all those hypocrites over there. And he's like, that's what Sunday is, a day that hypocrites get together to encourage and affirm each other. Hypocrites swarm together on Sunday. But that's not why churches exist. That's not why people gather on Sunday. That's not why we gather today on Sunday. Um, I've been to some churches that feel like they exist to be social clubs or business connection points. But the church should exist for one reason. Something happened on Sunday that changed the history of the world. And because that moment happened on a Sunday, people gather together to re-celebrate that moment every Sunday ever since for 2,000 years. And the story of why we gather on Sunday is found in all four Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four accounts of Jesus' life. But this morning, we're going to look at Luke 24. And starting in verse 1, it says this, On the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and they were perplexed at this. Suddenly, two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. I love that description, dazzling clothes. Have you ever just walked out, and you're like, this outfit today dazzles? I've never seen that. Maybe you have. Um, so the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. This is what he said. It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. I love that the angels here, these, these messengers who appear, they're like, remember, he literally walked you through exactly what was going to happen. You remember that? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 disciples and to all the rest of the people who followed Jesus. And Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things that happened. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. We'll talk about that in a minute. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and when he stooped to look into the tomb, he saw only the linen clothes that they had put on the dead body. And he went away amazed at what had happened. On the first day of the week, remember that's what it said there in verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, these women went to the tomb. 
Something happened on the first day of the week, on a Sunday, and it changed the world. And as a result, people have been gathering together on Sundays for 2,000 years now. Something happened, and it was so dramatic, it changed everything. See, the early followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were used to worshiping on Saturday. They called it Sabbath. But something so crazy happened on Sunday, it reoriented the entire way that they saw their week. It reoriented the entire way that they worshiped God. Everything began to center around Jesus rising from the dead on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And in the book of Acts, which tells us the story of the, the early followers of Jesus after the resurrection coming together and starting to make churches, they begin to meet on the first day of the week. They begin to sing songs like Darby just did, praising the risen Savior, and they began to study what Jesus taught, how he lived and loved, and how they could live and love like he did, how they could live out what he did. What they realized was, if this guy came back from the dead, we need to take what he said seriously. Right? If somebody's like, teaches all this great stuff, but they just die like everybody else, you're like, oh, there might be some good things in there. But if someone teaches something, and then they die and come back to life, we're like, okay, they're on a whole nother level. If death can't even stop the life that Jesus lived, we need to become students of that life. We need to live the life that he lived. So people began to gather on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. Every time people gather together on the first day of the week to talk about Jesus, to talk about how they can live and love like Jesus, what they're celebrating is the resurrection. See, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter, but really every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. It's saying, we believe that a man came back from the dead, and he came back from the dead because he was God. And he invites anyone to live and love like him, to become students of his way of life. And through that, they can have an experience. They can have a relationship with God. Every time you drive by a church on Sunday and there's people gathered there, it's proof of the resurrection. You see, there were people who literally saw Jesus. We're going to talk about some of those this morning. There were people who literally saw him die and then saw him alive again. And they're like, we don't know how it happened except by the power of God, but we believe it. We've seen it. And when he appears to his disciples um, later on in this chapter, they're like, are you a ghost? And he's like, look, you can touch the holes in my hand and the hole in my side where the spear stabbed me. And I can eat food. I'm not a ghost. I'm a real risen body. And those people were so convinced that Jesus had come back from the dead, they were willing to die for it. In fact, when they were pressed, when they were martyred, when they were put under Roman um, imprisonment and ultimately death, they did not recant this statement. They said, we saw a guy come back from the dead. We believe this. They believed it so strongly, they told other people who didn't see Jesus directly, but the people who saw Jesus believed it so strongly that they're like, I believe these guys really saw him. And then those people began to tell other people, hey, I didn't see it, but these people had seen it, and they believed it so strongly they told me. And then they began to tell people, and 2,000 years later, somebody told you, and somebody told me. And they believed it because the person before them believed it, because the person before them believed it, and the person before them, and them, and them, saw it. And that belief has been so strong for 2,000 years, we've been gathering together on Sundays to say, we still believe that a man came back from the dead. 
Every time people gather on Sunday, it's a testament that Jesus died and he came back to life three days later. Every time we meet on a Sunday, we're declaring to the world, life wins, not death. Death doesn't get the final word. I love what the angels say here. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They're like, you don't go to a graveyard if you're looking for people who are alive. You go somewhere where living people are. Jesus is not here. He's risen. He's not dead. Now, some of us are half-empty type people. That's me. I usually look at a situation, and you know those people who are super optimistic. They look at a situation, and they're like, we have two flat tires, but we have two good tires. You know, when they're really excited, and I'm like, two flat tires, you can't drive on that. That's no good. You know, I'm always looking at the, the negative side. I'm always looking at the glass half empty. And uh, it says in some of the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and uh, John, it talks about how people were like, they must have stolen the body. There's no way he came back to life, so they must have stolen the body. See, a lot of us have a tendency to look at a bad situation and see empty graves. We see impossibilities. We think someone stole the body when God has actually performed a resurrection. We look at a really bad situation and we're like, somebody stole the body. Instead of seeing impossibility, we need to look at the infinite possibility of God's power and love. If they really were like, God has an infinite power and love, they would have looked at the tomb and said, he's been resurrected. God's done a miracle. Instead, they looked at it and they're like, oh, somebody probably stole the body, like someone moved it. God couldn't have done this amazing thing. Sometimes we stare at obstacles in our lives and we see empty graves and God's like, no, 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 I'm working a resurrection here. It may look like an empty grave where somebody stole the body, but it's actually a resurrection. Sometimes we miss the resurrection that God is working in our lives because our natural tendency is to be so negative we just assume the worst instead of remembering that we serve a God who does the best. Sometimes God has to let our dream die so that he can resurrect a better one for us. And of course, some of us are looking for dead or we're looking for life in dead places, right? We're all wanting life. We're all wanting to be full. Um, so I, I love to play Xbox. That's like what I do for fun. And I turn off my brain and I, I play video games. And so I have this controller that I, has a battery pack where you plug it in and it charges. What I found is after a while that battery pack does not charge anymore. And no matter how much I plug it in or how much I wiggle the wires, how much I hit it against stuff, it does not charge. It just won't charge anymore. If you put in a dead battery pack into an Xbox controller, it will not work. No matter how many times I press the buttons or how much I shake it, how much I yell at it or throw it, it does not work unless I put a battery pack in that actually has power and life. If you try to fill the dead, empty spots in your life with something that has no power, which has no life, it's not going to bring you any life. That's what the angels are saying here. Like, why would you try to fill, why would you try to look for life in a dead spot? And sometimes we look for life in addictions, or we look for life in relationships, or we look for life in achievements, or money, or success. And the only place we're going to find life, where we're going to find fulfillment, where we're going to find satisfaction, is in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, it says this, You and I were spiritually dead 
Our batteries were exhausted. They were dead. They didn't work because of our sins, this selfish tendency to do what we want rather than what's best for others. Because we rejected God's way and we assisted on doing things our way. We lived to do what we wanted regardless of who it hurt. We deserve to be punished for our behavior, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us made us alive and he has raised us up with Jesus. He has saved us by his unearnable goodness. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. If Jesus is alive, we can truly live. If Jesus is alive, all bets are off. Anything can happen. It's changed the story. Have you ever been watching a movie and you're like, okay, this is the way this movie's going. I know how it's going to end. And then all of a sudden something happens and you're like, they just jumped the shark. Like anything could happen now. This movie's like, there's no rules anymore. Anything could happen. It's like, if Jesus came back to life, everything we thought about life has been changed. All the rules don't apply anymore. It means that death isn't the end. Death doesn't get the victory. Death isn't the master. People say we can be sure of two things, right? Death and taxes. We can't be sure of death anymore because Jesus came back to life. What we can be sure of is that Jesus isn't going to let death win. Death doesn't get to tell the end of the story. He doesn't get the last word. Because Jesus came back to life, it means our lives are not a cruel joke where we suffer for a little bit and then we die. There's something after this. There's something more. Jesus gets to tell the end of our story. Now, when I was in college, I majored in English and Bible. And uh, I love English. I love writing. I love literature. And in literature, they taught me something. Good stories end with a wedding. Bad stories end with a funeral. Good stories end in a wedding. Bad stories, tragedies, sad stories, they end with a funeral. And the end of the story of mankind in Revelation 19.9, it says, and an angel said this, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what the angel told John to write. And so John says, you know what? God has shown me that at the end of the story of humanity is this beautiful wedding picture, this beautiful wedding feast with God in heaven. The end of the story is a wedding, not a funeral. Your story doesn't end at a funeral. That's just the next step to more story with you and Jesus forever. Because Jesus came back to life, death doesn't get to write the last word. The end of your story is not a funeral, it's a wedding party. Because Jesus is alive, death no longer has the final say. Jesus gets to write the last word of your story and my story. They don't write on our tombs, rest in peace, RIP. It's rest to party, or get raised to party. I really thought that was going to be hilarious, but it wasn't. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. Never use that again. Um, the women, though, I love this story because it focuses on these women who remembered his words. They came to the tomb. They saw that he wasn't there. These angels appeared to him. And then the angels are like, don't you remember what he said? He said, hey, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to come back to life in three days. And they're like, oh, yeah, he did say that. And I'm like, come on. He literally spelled it out for you. He told you exactly what he was going to do. He says, I'm going to die, but I'll be all right. God's going to bring me back to life. But when it happened, no one believed. Everybody thought it was the end. 
even though he told them ahead of time, this is what's going to happen, no one believed. He literally spelled it out for them, and they still felt blindsided. Before we start judging them too much and thinking, man, what's your problem? Like, why would they do that? How could you forget the words of Jesus? How many times does something unexpected or unexplained or unpleasant happen and suddenly we forget everything that Jesus promised, everything that Jesus said, and everything that Jesus has done for us in the past? See, we're just like that. We have a tendency to be like, oh, yeah, he did say he'd take care of me. He did say that he'd always love me. He did say he'd always be there for me. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper or Communion. And um, one of the things that Jesus said, and we'll look at the passage in a minute, during Communion is we should do that to remember Him. We should take the bread and we should take the juice and do it to remember Him. How do you forget Jesus? Right? Easter comes up every year. That's kind of a big reminder. People talk about him all the time. That's kind of a big reminder. I don't think it's because we forget that Jesus existed. Like you're like, oh yeah, I remember Jesus. That 2,000 year old rabbi. Yeah, yeah. It's not that you forget there was a Jesus. We forget what Jesus was like. That's what we forget. Communion reminds us that we serve a God who's so good he would die in our place. Rather than us suffering and dying, he would say, you know what? I'm going to die in your place. We serve a God who's so good, he would put himself in harm's way to protect us. We serve a God who is so loving and so forgiving, he would gladly jump in front of death to take a bullet for us. Communion reminds us that we serve a God who would die for his creation instead of killing his creation. He would rather suffer for his creation than make his creation suffer. And so these women here, the women are the first people to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus' first followers to know that he has risen from the dead were women. It wasn't the men of the group. It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the apostles. It was these women who were the first to know that Jesus was back. The first people Jesus wanted to know that he was alive were these ladies who had followed him and had been a part of his ministry. And they're so excited that he's alive. They come running back and they talk to the 11 apostles, 11 rather than 12, because Judas at this point has betrayed Jesus and gone out and killed himself. And then um, these other followers of Jesus who are gathered around, kind of mourning together. And these women come in. Can you imagine this? And they're like, Jesus is alive. And you know what the men say? Sounds like nonsense. That's literally what the verse says. It sounds like they were speaking nonsense and they did not believe them. <laughs> like, here it is. Jesus had spelled it all out for them ahead of time. Then he dies, he comes back to life. He tells these women first. The women come running back and they're like, guys, you won't believe this. Jesus is alive. And they're like, women, I don't believe a word of what you're saying. These are the apostles. These are supposed to be the closest friends of Jesus, the students of how he lived and loved, and they reject this first account that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, what I think is fascinating about this is, in first century Israel here, a woman could not be called as a witness in court. That's how bad the situation was. There's some things that we need to fix in our country where women aren't properly respected, they aren't given equal pay, things like that. In first century Israel, it was really bad. If you called a woman into court, they're like, oh, we can't hear her testimony. 
Only a man can give testimony in court. And so think about this for a minute. Think about this. If you were faking the resurrection, if this was fake, if the disciples were like, this is going to be a great money marketing scheme, we should pretend Jesus came back to life. Why would you make women the first people to see him? Their, their account couldn't be held in court. No one would believe them because women weren't trusted or respected. And so the only thing that makes sense is that he actually was raised from the dead and that Jesus cared about and valued women as much as men. And so he wanted them to hear first. He wanted to flip on its head the cultural expectations of the time. The first people to know about the resurrection were women. Women weren't God's second choice to know about Jesus. They were equally as valuable as men in God's eyes. Both men and women reflect the image of God. But if you were the apostles, as some people say, who made up the story of Jesus' resurrection, why would you have women know first? There's no advantage to it. And if you did... Why would you include the part where you're like, they're just talking nonsense and we didn't believe them, right? When I tell a story and I did something stupid, I soften that fact when I tell the story. I'm like, oh yes, I didn't run over the curb and blow my tire. I just happened to blow a tire, you know? Like, I wasn't driving recklessly. Um, when we retell stories, we tend to make ourselves look better than we actually did in person, right? Maybe it's just me that does this. Or, you know, pastors are really bad about this. They're like, how many people showed up? You're like, 300 people. It was 10. You know, like, you, you, you think, you make the story sound a little bit better or a lot better than it actually was. So the Easter egg hunt this, uh, this year was a little bit smaller because it was raining. Uh, but last year, there were a lot of people there. And so um, this one person who had been involved with it uh, in the community and helping us, they were like, it was like 400, 500, 600 people there. And I was like, uh, I don't know if it was that much, but they were involved in it, so they wanted to make the story seem bigger and better than what it was. If the apostles were lying, if this was all propaganda, why would you include the part where you look like an idiot and you don't even believe the story you're about to die for and spend the rest of your life sharing with everybody else? The only thing that makes sense is, at this point, this really happened, and they didn't believe, and then later they really saw him, and they really did believe. If they were trying to create a religious conspiracy, they were idiots to include this detail. Don't have women see him first. Don't say that you didn't believe at first. Make yourself out to sound better than you actually are. That's how you build a religious conspiracy. But they don't do that. I can only assume that they were telling the truth. And so the women come back in, okay? And they're so excited. They're like, Jesus is alive. We don't have to cry anymore. We don't have to mourn. We don't have to wonder what happened. He's back. He's alive. And the men, this is, they totally mansplain. They're like, you're hysterical. Calm down. You've been upset so long, sleep deprived. You think you saw something. This is just nonsense. Uh, two weeks ago, the new Star Wars trailer came out for uh, The Rise of Skywalker. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I know nobody else probably cares, but maybe a few of you. I know a few of you are Star Wars fans. Yeah. Um, I was so excited. I was uh, out in Lancaster with Darbs and out at this pastor's conference, and we're walking around spending a nice time together, and I get a text message from my friend, and he goes, 
new Star Wars trailer. That's all it said, and I was like, that's enough. I'm like Googling it, immediately bring it up. We're walking along underneath an underpass, and I'm watching it like a hundred times over and over, and Darby's like, we're supposed to be spending time together, what are you doing? And I'm like, babe, I love you, but this is the new Star Wars trailer. Like, I've gotta watch this. And so then, we're walking along on the sidewalk, and I'm like, can I tell you about this? I, I know you really don't care, but can I tell you? And I'm like, Ray is totally a Skywalker, and you know, that's a clone of Luke's hand, and I start saying all this Star Wars gibberish, and Darby just looks at me and she's like, what are you talking about? Like nothing you said made any sense. It was nonsense. And that's exactly how the apostles look at these women. The women come in and they're like, God has raised Jesus from the dead. And they're like, you're talking nonsense. What are you, a Star Wars fan? Like did the new trailer drop? You're not making any sense. I started telling all my theories and ideas and it felt like nonsense. And that's how it felt to these apostles. They didn't believe. I love the fact that they include this detail. That they don't make themselves look good like they've got it all together. In each of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we see these really bad sides of the disciples, of the apostles, uh, where they're really honest about the fact that they struggled to believe and they had questions and they had doubts. They don't soften the unflattering parts to make themselves look better. Peter, though, here at the end, he's like, I'll at least go to investigate. And so he goes and he looks into the tomb. Some of them just sat there and they're like, just dismissing the idea altogether. Not even going to worry about it. But Peter at least decides to go and check it out. And some of you are going to sit here and be like, eh, I'm not going to go check it out. There's no way a man came back from the dead. There's no way Jesus is alive. But some of you will go check it out. Some of you won't bother, some of you will ignore it, but some of you will be like Peter and at least go and check it out. And this is what I have found in my life. I found that if I genuinely run towards the tomb, if I genuinely search for Jesus, if I genuinely want to know the truth, I will encounter a risen Jesus who fills the emptiest parts of my life. And I think you will too. If you run away from the tomb or you just ignore it, you'll stay as you are. But I think if you really look into the resurrection of Jesus, the more I look into it, the more compelling I find it, the more real I find it. There's two times you run in your life, right? Um, well, listen, Chelsea. Chelsea runs all the time for fun. Like, who runs for fun? Um, for me, I only run two times in my life. If I'm scared or I'm excited. Like, if there is a scary monster, or I assume there's a scary monster, and I want to run away, like... Like someone's in an Easter rabbit costume and it just looks terrifying and I, I run from that. Um, but there's also times I run to things. Like if people have a plate of donuts, <laughs> run right to that, you know? We run to things that we're excited about. We run from things we're scared from. I think if we run to Jesus, if you run towards Jesus, you will find that he lived a life that will transform if you become students of the way that he lived and loved, it will transform your world, your life, your workplace, your community. It will change everything. If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And you can either run from him and run from the fact that he's alive, or you can run towards him. And I tell you, if you run towards him, you'll encounter a risen Savior who will change everything. If you pursue the ways of Jesus, the way that he lived, the way that he treated people, it'll change everything. If Jesus is dead, he can't help you live and love like he did. 
But Jesus has promised that if we become students of the way that he lived and loved, he'd supernaturally empower us with his spirit. And what I've found is as I try to become a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved, I find that he gives me the supernatural strength to love people I couldn't love and to impact the world in a way that I never thought I could. If Jesus is alive, anything can happen. And so what's our takeaways? What do we do with this? Number one, I want you to ask this question. If Jesus is really alive, are you willing to say something to him? Now, if he's not alive, no one will know you said this, and your words will just float off into the cosmos, and no one will hear it. But if he is alive, I think he will hear this, and I think he will answer this, because that's what he's done for me. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray, and this is what I'd like you to pray. Jesus, if you are really alive, will you reveal yourself to me? Now, if he's not alive, there's no harm in saying this, right? Nothing will happen. But if he is alive, and if you're willing to take that risk, I think you'll see him begin to speak to you in your life. And I would encourage you to read the book of John. And uh, I remember praying this simple prayer and reading the book of John and the person of Jesus becoming so real and alive to me. And then the second thing I would challenge you to do is gather with us on Sundays. Why? Because Alex, you want a bunch of people to come in and listen to you talk? No, I don't care about that. Because when we gather, when you gather with people on Sunday, you're announcing to the world, death does not win. This world does not end with a sad story. My life is not a bad story. My life ends with life, not death. When we gather on Sunday, we're announcing to the world the, that death does not get the final say, that Jesus does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're alive. And thank you for the way that you work in my life. You challenge me when I selfishly do things that hurt others, hurt myself, and hurt the planet you've put me on. Thank you that you're teaching me to become a student of the way that you treated people, the way that you impacted the world, and the, the uh, relationship that you have with God the Father. Lord, I pray today for these people out here, I pray that they will say this as well. If you are real, if you are alive, reveal yourself to us. Show us how you're working in our hearts, in our minds, in our world, in our church. Lord, I pray that as we open up the Bible, that you will reveal yourself to us. As we encounter people, you will reveal yourself to us. As we whisper prayers in the middle of the night that no one hears except you, I pray that you will reveal yourself to us. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus would. Amen. So this morning we're taking, um, celebrating communion, which I thought was just very fitting on Easter. So right before Jesus was killed, right before he was arrested by the Romans and the Jewish religious authorities and killed, he gathered at night with his closest disciples. And in Luke 22, verses 15 through 20, he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, 
and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new promise in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so we take the bread and we take off a piece and we dip it in the juice as a reminder that we serve a God who's alive and not dead. We serve a God who loves us so much he would die in our place. We serve a God who would do anything to have a relationship with us. In Luke 24, we were there earlier in this passage, but after the women come back in and no one believes them, two of the followers of Jesus start to head back to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And as they're walking along the road, they start getting in an argument about Jesus, and they're talking about, like, I thought he was going to be the Messiah, this special person that God promised to send to restore the relationship between God and humanity, but he's dead, so he couldn't have been that, and they're arguing with each other, and all of a sudden, the risen Jesus walks up. But they don't realize it's Jesus. I don't know if he has his hood up. Um, I don't know if it's because the fact that they're like, well, he's dead, so it couldn't be him. It's just somebody who looks like him. But they're walking along and they're arguing and he starts walking with them and he says, what are you talking about? And they're like, what's wrong with you? Everybody knows what we're talking about. It's the biggest conversation topic. I love sometimes like um, people will be like, hey, have you heard about? And it's like in the world of Twitter, everybody's heard about the same things. We're all talking about the same things. Like there's very rarely when you say to somebody, have you heard about it? And they're, they're like, no, I haven't heard about that. Everybody heard it, hears about it. And so the whole city's been talking about it. And Jesus walks up to him and he says, what are you talking about? And they're like, how can you not know? We're talking about Jesus who was killed. And we thought he was going to be the Messiah, this person who's going to restore the relationship between God and man. But he's dead now. And we're fighting about whether or not he was this person. And it says he began to talk to them, and he walks them through the entire Old Testament, talking about why the Messiah must come and suffer and die in our place and come back to life. And so they're listening to him, and they get to the village, and they're like, hey, you should stay and have dinner with us. It's nighttime. And he says, okay, I'll stay with you. And so he comes in, and he sits down at the table, and they hand him the bread, and he breaks it. And I love this verse. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them. That's the exact same verse that we have in the communion. It says in verse 19, and he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and began to give it to them, saying, this is my body. And this is what it says. And then they realized it was him and they recognized him. He said, do this to remember me. And he took the bread and he handed it out, and they're like, he's alive. And so today, as you take bread and you dip it in the juice, it's a way of saying, Jesus is alive. And I remember, my life does not end with death. My life is filled with life because he is alive. We're going to pray, and then I invite you to come and uh, partake. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your broken body and your shed blood. You defeated sin and death and hell so that we could be with you forever. Jesus, I am so grateful. You could have left us on our own because we tried to live on our own. We said, we can be our own gods. We've got this. We can handle ourselves. We've got technology and education. 
we have money and resources, we're good. But more and more, we realize that without you, God, we're in a desperate situation. We desperately need you, just like we need air to breathe and food to eat. We need to be connected to the God of the universe. And we can because of your broken body and his shed blood. And so today, Lord, we take part in communion to remember the fact that you lived and died and you live forever. And the life that you lived was a life of love. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.